1: You're listening to The Feast, where we explore the great meals that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Well, it seems like a funny time to be talking about dinner parties, doesn't it? In these very strange days of social distancing, most of us probably aren't holding that many dinner parties right now, unless they're with your family, your roommates, or maybe your newly adopted dog or cat. But on this episode, I'll ask you to imagine yourself at one of the best dinner parties held during the 20th century. You'll be seated next to famous writers, politicians, actors, even civil rights advocates. All from the social distancing safety of your own home. Because that's exactly what food history podcasts are for. Here at The Feast, we're dedicated to keeping your dinner party game in check from safe within your home. And what better dinner party to discuss than perhaps one of the most famous ones in U.S. history. In April 1962, almost exactly 50 years ago to the day, a group of 49 Nobel Prize winners, along with other prominent scientists, artists, and writers, gathered at the White House to enjoy the largest state dinner ever held by the Kennedy administration. Called the Meeting of the Minds, or a little more informally, the Brains Dinner, John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie hosted the most prominent intellectuals at work in the country to enjoy a night of dinner, drinks, and even a little surprise dancing. So who exactly was invited to this presidential party? Well, reading the guest list is like a little bit of reading a 20th century who's who. Among the guests was J. Robert Oppenheimer, theoretical physicist and former head of Los Alamos Laboratory, often known as the father of the atomic bomb. There was also Linus Pauling, Oppenheimer's longtime adversary on the nuclear question. He's often known as the founder of the fields of quantum chemistry and molecular biology. But it wasn't just scientists in attendance that night. There was also author James Baldwin. You may know his work from the recent film If Beale Street Could Talk. There was also the recent widow of Ernest Hemingway, Mary Welsh Hemingway. Astronaut John Glenn was there. Historian Arthur Schlesinger was there. Internationally renowned poet Robert Frost at the ripe old age of 88 even put in an appearance. You get the idea, right? Let's just say if you were at the dinner and didn't have a Pulitzer or a Nobel Prize, well, you really weren't pulling your weight. To learn more about this brains dinner, Back in February, I had the opportunity to speak with Joseph A. Esposito. Now, Joseph is the author of Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. Joseph himself is no stranger to Washington. He lived and worked in the city for most of his career.
0: Uh, I worked in the government. I worked in three presidential administrations. And uh, I have been very much interested in this dinner, the more I delved into it, the more excited I was about the the impact of the dinner and the importance of the dinner.
1: And his book is dedicated entirely to this one-night event back in 1962. He offers a unique lens on understanding how this dinner in JFK's Camelot signified the height of 1960s optimism and American ingenuity. An optimism that perhaps was not to last.
0: On April the 29th, 1962, as part of an ongoing series of of dinners at, at, at the White House during the Kennedy era, um, the president and Mrs. Kennedy uh, honored 49 Nobel laureates, as well as other distinguished Americans in the fields of science and, and, and those who were writers and scholars. It was almost exclusively Americans, with the exception of one important Canadian uh, who was Lester Pearson, later to become Prime Minister of Canada and uh, had been a Nobel Prize winner in 1957, somebody who was close to President Kennedy. So, in some ways, this is really a, 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 a honoring the Nobel laureates of the Western Hemisphere. So, the book, uh, which took me about uh, two or three years to write, really focuses on this rather unique uh, event. Uh, largest dinner party of the Kennedy uh, era, 175 guests, and it really was a who's who of intellectuals at in mid-century. Again, as I delved into it, I, there were a lot of interesting backstories of the people, and the interactions which which had taken place uh, before at the dinner and and after the dinner. Uh it, it continues to be a source of of great interest to me uh with the various people who were who were there. Uh people like uh Linus Pauling who had been out actually picketing President Kennedy before the dinner and went in to dinner and uh, had a great time. Uh J. Robert Oppenheimer was there, uh James Baldwin, William Styron Really, the list goes on and on of these distinguished, uh, distinguished people.
1: Yes, it, it it is an incredible list, both for the amount and caliber of people who attended the dinner, and then of course there was the the group who could not attend. Um, there were actually, and as you mentioned in this book, there could have been the possibility of several other notable guests at this dinner but for one reason or another had to decline um, their invitations. Could you maybe go into some of the people who could have been but were not in fact at the dinner?
0: Yes, J.D. Salinger declined. Carl Sandberg had a previous commitment. And uh, William Faulkner was living in Charlottesville at the time. It was about, it's about 100 miles from Washington, D.C. And uh, he declined because he said that uh Something in the effect that why that's a hundred miles away, that's too far to go for a meal.
1: <laughs> Although it it does seem that there were people who were coming from much further away than one hundred miles.
0: And many people came from California. One Nobel laureate had cut short his trip uh, in India and Israel to come back for the dinner. It was Carl uh, Sandburg, even though he he declined. He he said in his telegram that it should be the event of a lifetime, and and indeed it was and um the people who um reminisced at, at various points about the dinner really uh, identified it as a as really a high point of their of their life um rose styron the the wife of william styron and a, and a noted poet and writer in her own right, was very helpful to me in writing the book uh, I interviewed her and in fact she wrote the uh, the foreword to the book mrs linus pauling ava helen Pauling, who was who was really uh, fairly negative about President Kennedy uh, was very excited about the dinner, even though she wasn't real high on on Kennedy, and and, and in fact kept a number of uh, mementos from from the dinner. So it was uh, it was indeed a high point.
1: And I'm wondering, or I'm hoping that perhaps you could set a bit of context for folks who either have not had the chance to read the book or are just not perhaps familiar with the role of dinners and this kind of social gathering at the White House. Um, Could you maybe set this dinner and its unique nature in many ways? As you mentioned, it was the largest, it was this confluence of people from politics arts, the humanities, the sciences. During the Kennedy administration, um, what really was the role of, of the dinner party or dinners just in general, shall we say? Um, the Kennedys are, are known for being quite social, quite um, engaging hosts. What kind of dinners had been held prior to this event? And, and how do you see this dinner being either in a continuum or quite distinct from other dinners the Kennedys had held?
0: Well, in many areas, the Kennedys blazed a new trail. Uh, You know, it was 1,036 days of the Kennedy administration, and and there were a lot of uh, differences, um, a real break with the past. Uh, The Eisenhower administration, for example, uh, you had the oldest president being succeeded by the youngest elected president. But in, in terms of the areas where the Kennedys uh, had an impact. Uh, food was, was no exception. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, had hired a, a local Hyde Park housekeeper to be the White House cook. Um, she was awful. Sometimes Eleanor simply whipped up some eggs. Uh, the Eisenhowers employed a round of uh, military stewards um, to, uh, to to prepare meals in the White House, uh, hardly those who would be skilled in, uh, in hot cu- cuisine. But Jackie Kennedy... Um, who had done so much uh, to upgrade the White House with, with furnishings, with historical artifacts, paintings, a White House uh, guidebook, um, wanted to extend that to um, the culinary arts as well. And she, of course, had a big interest and a background in, in, French, uh, in French culture. So that had, a, that had an impact.
1: Now, Jackie Kennedy famously oversaw a $2 million redecoration of the White House. Enlisting the help of Henry Francis Dupont, her work was often described more as a restoration than a true renovation. Jackie and her team described their work as bringing back the grandeur of the original White House, often choosing historical wallpaper or furniture pieces to evoke previous eras in American history. On Valentine's Day 1962, only a few short months before this state dinner was to be held, Jackie Kennedy invited television cameras into the White House, giving the American public the first nationally broadcast tour of the president's home. Over 80 million viewers tuned in for the program. Jackie Kennedy was even given an Emmy Award for her role in the televised tour. Actually, it had been given to her only two or so weeks before this famous brains dinner was held in 1962.
0: What is the diplomatic reception room used for, besides receiving diplomats?
1: Well, it's the room that people
2: see first when they come to the White House. Everyone who comes to a state dinner here comes through it and leaves by it. So I think it should be a pretty room.
0: It's the way I came in, and it's a beautiful room. The wallpaper is magnificent.
2: Yes, this is wallpaper that was printed in France about 1834. It's all scenes of America.
0: And does most of the rest of the furniture in the room come from that same time?
2: Yes, very much that period. It's all quite unified in this room.
0: This is the corridor that leads across the White House to the state dining
2: room. That's right. I rather love this hall. It has all the colors one thinks of when one thinks of the White House. Red and white and blue and gold. It also has four of the best American pictures, which have been loaned to us for the White House including the only of the Gilbert Stewart, of John Barry, who founded the Navy.
0: This state dining room symbolizes your duties as an official hostess. Do you serve many meals here?
2: Yes, this is where all the state dinners and lunches are given. You can seat 102 people, so the table now is not set up for that many.
1: Are there many state dinners?
2: Yes, there are. Uh, there were almost two a month last year.
1: I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe take us through the maybe order of events that evening um, and maybe situate us a little bit in where the dinner was actually held, because you, you have a wonderful amount of detail of the rooms um, in which the dinner was held, because it was multiple rooms and how this did reflect this recent renovation um, kind of under the direction of Jackie Kennedy and as well some of the items that would have been there how the how the room was set up and interestingly how these very notable people were arranged um, because I think in many ways it was not a seating plan that we would necessarily expect today
0: very uh very beginning of the evening, people actually could drive up uh to to the White House and be dropped off if if they wanted to do so. uh some people came took a cab and were dropped off the southwest gate of the White House. In fact, an interesting anecdote is that james baldwin who was who was there at the dinner, forgot his invitation and somehow forgot to take his wallet <laughs> with him as well, so he had no form of identification so as he Went to the guard station there at uh, at the Southwest Gate. Uh, he said, "I, I you know, I'm, I've been invited, but I have no documentation." And the guard said, "Well, maybe your name is is written in your tuxedo." And he looks sure enough. It says James Baldwin. He said, "Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Just go right in." So it's a it's a world of difference from from today. They went into the cross hall. It's a, a large reception area and. People mingled. There were martinis and drinks, and uh, smoking. Smoking was was definitely prominent at this dinner. Each table, in fact, had a uh, a small tray with ten uh, cigarettes. The people were mingling there for a while, waiting for the president to 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 come down the stairs. And then they had a a reception line. People were introduced to the president and to the first lady in alphabetical order. Uh, and then they went in to, to, into dinner. Uh, so dinner was uh, in two rooms, in the state dining room, uh, where most of the people were, uh, and then in the blue room. President Kennedy was in the center, uh, seated at the center of, of the room. His table had a, a number of prominent people, including Robert Frost and um the widows of uh, George Marshall, the se- former Secretary of State, and uh, the widow of, uh, of, of Hemingway, who had died the pre- previous year. So they were seated on the right and left of the president. In the, in the blue room, Mrs. Kennedy was the, uh, the host. And uh, seated at her table were, were Pearl Buck, John Glenn, uh, Lester Pearson. And then there was a host... For each of the tables, they were primarily people associated, or they were all associated with the administration in some way. Sometimes they were a relative, like hill Kennedy uh, hosted the one table, or they were people who had official positions within the administration, like Press Secretary PR Salinger, the head of the, uh, the president's uh, science advisor. Uh, and they, they were basically, you know, there to keep the conversation going and to be basically the uh, well indeed the host for the for the particular table.
1: I want to return just very briefly to the dinner itself where people were seated and again touching on and you mentioned this before the variety of Uh, both individuals, but also political opinions um, that were invited and seated in some cases quite prominently. There is, of course, I don't want to say a rivalry, but the the perhaps enduring friction between Linus Pauling and J. Robert Oppenheimer, um, who were both in attendance. And then there was also, I believe you noted in the book, the very interesting That's a conversation flow between the president and Mary Welsh Hemingway um, on the topic of Cuba, which they seem to disagree about quite quite a bit, or at least let's just say that um, Mary Welsh Hemingway disagreed with Kennedy's policies in Cuba. I was wondering if you might just touch on that, that not everyone was exactly on the same political wavelength.
0: It was very interesting that there were uh, people who disagreed with the president and were not reluctant to say so. The case of uh, the situation with Mary Welsh Hemingway is, is is quite fascinating, really. Of course, the, the Hemingways had lived in um, uh, outside of Havana for uh, quite some time, and they got out r- right at the uh, right before Castro seized power. The, the Hemingways were generally sympathetic to Castro because they were. Very concerned about the Batista uh, regime, and so Mary and uh, and, and uh, Ernest Hemingway were out of the country when when their their house had been seized, and uh, Mary was interested in getting their possessions uh, returned to them, going through a, a mutual friend, Bill Walton, who was a socialite and art an art connoisseur, a mutual friend with, of the Kennedys. Um, they were able to work through and get uh, Hemingway's uh, manuscripts and, and possessions out, out of Cuba. So Mary was very um, appreciative of that, and, and and she had been quite interested in, in meeting President. But there was this disagreement about uh, about um, Cuban policy, and. Uh, in particular uh, Mary was very critical of the of the Bay of Pigs and she told the president directly uh mm-hmm. at, at dinner and and he was I think taken aback by this. There's a photograph mm-hmm. that exists of that night in which you could see her somewhat hectoring him. So I remember she she seated right next to him. And they had a, a discussion in which was uh in which the president was very much on the defensive and uh she had indicated that she wanted to be an emissary, uh, to, to Castro. And, uh, he wanted to hear nothing of it. Uh, so there was this, this tension so that later that uh, late that evening, president called his, his friend, Bill Walden at his Georgetown house and said, complained bitterly about, about, uh, about Mary Hemingway and said, you really, I got really stuck with a bore. As it turns out, and, and it's great irony, Mary Hemingway was there, with Bill Walton in Georgetown and he was aware of this this criticism of her. So uh Walton later said that um, she was just very nervous uh and was still upset about the death of her husband. So that was that was one tree of of, uh, of of conflict. The fact that Linus Pauling was out picketing the president. He had actually it wasn't just the picketing, he picketed the day before as well as the day of the dinner because it was because of the stalled nuclear test talks with the Soviet Union. It wasn't merely because of the picketing, but he had sent a number of letters and telegrams to the president uh, in one instance saying that he was he essentially equated Kennedy with, with Hitler, saying he was going to be down in history as one of the vilest people in in, in history. A. Helen Pauling, his wife, had sent a a letter several months earlier to Jackie Kennedy uh, criticizing the president and talking about uh, nuclear testing and about the strontium-90 in the milk. And uh, so everybody was very much on anticipating what the president and first lady would say to, to, to Linus and, and Ava Helen Pauling in the reception. Line. And when they, uh, when the Pollings approached, approached, um, the president said, uh, "Well, uh, Doctor Pauling, I see you've been around the White House a few times." And then he said, uh, "Well, I hope you will continue to express your opinions." Now, Mrs. Kennedy, though uh, somewhat more protective, particularly of her children, said, uh, "Doctor uh, Polling, my my little girl wants to know what has Daddy done wrong now." You know, the President Kennedy uh, understood, and and, and Jackie uh, talks about Jackie Kennedy talks about this in her. Um, or subsequent conversations about the president that were recorded, that he understood that the, the need to work with people, even if you disagreed with them. Again, this whole evening was there was it was symbolic. It was to, to highlight the, the achievements of, of, of Americans, particularly in the field of science. And, and remember, this was at the height of the Cold War, in which we were just locked into this icy struggle with with the, with the Soviet Union. So we. Wanted to put our best foot forward and talk about. And and Kennedy was very proud of all the Nobel Prize winners we had, far outpacing the Soviet Union.
1: But of course, we can't forget about the food. With all these actors, politicians, and writers, what would have been a menu fit? For a so-called brains dinner. Thankfully, the White House could turn to its newly hired chef Renee Verdun to come up with a meal appropriate for this historic collection of figures.
0: So the food was was important uh, as part of a, as as an adjunct to the making of the White House a a a centerpiece for uh, for America and as a. Uh, an opportunity to to highlight uh the culture, uh highlight individuals. At the very outset of the administration, it would had been decided that uh that there would be a, a real outreach to to a broader community than had been in the past. Uh, it would be it would be that culture uh culture would be highlighted. I mean Robert Fraught being the first poet to participate in an inauguration. At the beginning of, of, of the administration she hired Mrs. Kennedy hired um a 36 year old chef Rene Verdon. He had uh, trained in his native France. He had worked at the Essex House, Carlisle Hotel in New York City. And um, I believe it was in April of 1961 that he prepared his first meal at the White House. Uh, it was a luncheon for British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. And it was front page news in the New York Times. Uh, the food critic. Craig Playborn had judged the luncheon a big success. He said, Verdict, bravo. The chef there, uh, Verdun, had the, ex- the distinction of, of having a photograph of himself in his kitchen run on the front page of the New York Times. These dinners continued. Uh, the, his, the favorite of the chef, of, of Chef Verdun, was uh, the state dinner for uh, Mohammed Ayub Khan, who was the president of Pakistan. And that was held at Mount Vernon. It was the first time a a state dinner had been held outside of the White House, and now Vernon, of course, is George Washington's home. It's across the river from Washington, D.C., and the main course there at that dinner was uh, Poulet Chasseur. Uh, the National Symphony Orchestra played under the tents, and so it was a, it was a, uh, a, a big success. Uh, the, the dinners continued. It was all part of this outreach to bring high style and culture to the White House. Uh, Richard Goodwin, who uh, uh, was later later married uh, Doris Kearns, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, was the one who came up with this idea of this particular dinner to honor uh, Nobel laureates, particularly because they were the Americans were so uh, strongly represented in the sciences and among the Nobel Prize winners. Uh, so, uh, planning began in late uh, 1961. And uh, the dinner took place on April 29th, 1962. It was a Sunday night, the first day of daylight savings time.
1: And I I would love to talk about some of the elements that were served at the dinner, because in your book, there's a a very interesting interaction at least um, or comment made by by chef Verdun in which the dinner was being referred to as the I believe brains dinner where Verdun was very keen to emphasize that brains were not actually on the menu for the dinner
0: he wasn't he was indeed concerned not being a, a, a native America and understanding some of the idioms he didn't uh, he didn't make the connection with the uh these brainy people, uh, he was indeed shocked. He said, we're not serving brains for that dinner. Um, but, uh, of course, it, 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 was, uh, it was not the case. And, and Beef Wellington was, was the main course of the dinner.
1: Yes, although when you look at the menu, which um, you do include as part of the book's materials, even though beef wellington, I think most of us would associate as being a very English or British dish um, and certainly would have been popular, I believe, in the States, um, everything is written in French. Uh, I think a nod to that, the origin of of the chef himself, but perhaps again, that uh, attempt to Um, emulate the French haute cuisine or the French style um, that Jackie Kennedy was so interested in. So I was hoping that you might take us very briefly through, besides the main course of Beef Wellington, um, some of the other elements that were featured on the menu that night, um, because they are things that perhaps would not be as popular uh, today and perhaps reflect again that 1960s um, enduring Interest uh, with with French cuisine.
0: Well, the appetizer uh, was um, the crowns of victory. It would be be the English translation, and this was a, a, a seafood mousse. I can tell you that he describes it as the crowns being cooked in individual molds, and then there were they were adorned with pieces of lobster.
1: Oh wow! Okay, okay. So an an opulent dish to start out
0: and then there there was of course the the, the beef wellington and uh, interestingly uh the, the chef after he left the white house uh in a huff uh with over the uh what he considered lower uh, culinary standards of the Johnson administration mm-hmm. uh he wrote a a cookbook in 1967 the, the white house chef cookbook came out and uh one of the uh, recipes in that cookbook is uh, the beef wellington recipe.
1: You know, what was served with the beef wellington was, I think, a very interesting rendering of, I believe, what we would just say today is French fries or a variation thereof. But it's it's rendered on the menu as something I've never seen before as a description in any language, which is, I think, palm Chip.
0: It's pretty obvious <laughs> what that is, I, I suppose. But uh, indeed, it, it was. Um, I think he also refers to it in other, uh, another venue as game chips, um, slightly seasoned. He uses um, Parmesan cheese, curry powder. Uh, so it was. It was uh, perhaps a. More than the run-of-the-mill uh, <laughs> French fries, but that was indeed a uh, uh, part part of the meal. And then there were the uh, artichokes, the the fond artichoke, and then there was the endive.
1: And I was just hoping that for the dessert, you might just be able to describe what that that baume Caribbean is.
0: Uh, well, um, that was uh, it was uh, uh, vanilla ice cream, pineapple. Coconut milk, rum, cinnamon, vanilla extract, whip whipping cream, and uh, a green syrup. He, he said that uh, because the, the these kind of mixtures are so rich, that um, garnish would be uh, a, a desirable thing. So that's why he included the the what he said the, a ruffle of whipped cream <laughs> and, and, and a few edible flowers. Now interestingly uh, uh William Styron the the writer he he talked about the dinner uh in in his letters and he wrote up a little a little article about it as well and uh he was very critical of the meal. Um, he had been drinking and he also had been taking an antibiotics, so perhaps he was a bit too critical. But uh, the, the dessert, he said it was much too sweet. He, 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 a little bit of a play on words, he said it was a real bomb. Oh. <laughs> From what I've been able to gather in my research, uh, uh, nobody uh, really uh, complained about the food. And in fact, okay. it was the integral part of the you know, of the evening, obviously.
1: And it does sound like it must have been a success, at least in the eyes of Verdun, if he then went on to include these recipes in his later cookbooks and, and other publications. So it must have been seen by by him, if not others, as as success in terms of, of recipes and, and a menu altogether.
0: I'm sure it was. Yes. After dinner, people migrated to some adjacent rooms, to the, the red room and to the, the green room to, to sit and relax. Uh, at one point in in the archives, Tish Baldur's the social secretary, says it was the powdering time. Uh, so it was just a, a chance to kind of relax for, for um, a short time, and then uh, and then go on into the East Room, East Room, largest room in the White House, a very historic room. That was where they had a a literary presentation for the evening, and three people who had been Nobel laureates um, had. Material that they had written recited by the by the actor uh, Frederick
1: March. Although Frederick March's name may not pop up often today, during the early to mid twentieth century, he was considered one of the true greats of stage and screen. So much so that he actually co-hosted the nineteen fifty four Academy Awards with Donald O'Connor, an actor you may know from films like Singing in the Rain. He plays Gene Kelly's best friend. Thank you, thank you, Donald,
0: friends. Yes, this is a dramatic night in New York, too, of course. This is a dramatic season here, springtime. Central Park is all green. Flowers are bursting into flame. Uh, delicatessen stores are changing over to summer-weight salami, <laughs> That is it's beautiful. And I may say, Donald, that you are doing a beautiful job tonight.
2: Why? Thank you.
0: Dr. Shane, I didn't know you spoke German, Donald
2: Well, just a few words You see, when I was a kid, we had a dachshund
0: Well, I hope you kept him I understand Zanuck wants to remake the Rin Tin Tin pictures in Cinemascope
2: <laughs> Okay, I give up Well, look, before, before we get on with the Academy Awards I'd like to ask you a question, Mr. Marge
0: What's this mister routine? We're all one big happy family,
2: Donald Well, okay, Dad
0: Interestingly, before people entered the East Room, there was a period of impromptu dancing. There was a a military group called the Strolling Strings, an ensemble that had been playing throughout the evening. And Linus Pauling, who was an avid dancer, he very very much liked the waltz and the tango, uh, asked them to, to play certain tunes, and he started dancing few other couples joined in and started dancing and dancing was not part of the evening. It it wasn't supposed to be part of the evening, but uh, it caught, it caught the Kennedys by surprise. Actually, some people were invited to the private residence upstairs, the second floor, the yellow oval room where they can talk informally with the president and the first lady, both the president and first lady liked that room. It was a, it was a a place where they could just relax, relax and put, Eventually, the evening was completed and they could they could just kind of put up their feet, Jackie, could smoke her cigarettes, and the president could smoke his Cuban cigars and and that's what they were doing. The Styrons were invited up there, Diana and Lionel Trilling, Robert Frost. Some people had actually gone on to Arthur Schlesinger's uh, townhouse in Georgetown. Schlesinger, of course, was the noted historian who was a who was kind of the in-house historian for the Kennedy White House and was a, kind of the outreach to the intellectuals. And some of the people had gone over to a uh, an after party at, at his uh, townhouse.
1: And with that, the famous Brains dinner was complete. I'll leave you with the image of Jackie and John Kennedy. I imagine them talking casually in the private residence, Jackie with her high heel shoes off, the evening finally at an end. Meanwhile, some of the most famous academics and writers of the age partied at a Georgetown residence across town. That famous party, which took place nearly half a century ago and in a world very different from the one we're living in today, may not have led to landmark peace deals or the signing of an international treaty, but that event can serve as a kind of snapshot of a world the Kennedys and perhaps much of America was hoping for, an optimistic one, a forward-looking one where people from different backgrounds and very different political beliefs could gather together for dinner under one roof. I asked Joseph what inspired him to choose this dinner out of the many, many that have been held at the White House over the years to focus on for his book.
0: It's really interesting, not only for the people involved, um, but for the symbolism. And I think that took a lot of leadership for the president to have such a dinner. Particularly, like for instance, inviting Robert, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who had been in, really in exiled from the White House for for a near, nearly a decade when he lost his security clearance, he took a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for doing that. But but this was an opportunity again to to underscore the, the accomplishments of of, of uh, Americans in in so many different fields. And interestingly, quite a number of these people were, were immigrants. Uh, they had fled from Europe or Asia for you know war torn areas or, or, or tyranny and uh, they were they were welcomed at the white house and Pearl Buck talks about how she noticed that when the president city uh, descended uh, the steps that that evening and everyone was looking at them as they're descending uh they were actually people with tears in their eyes, not because they were the these were the Kennedys, but it was because these individuals who were so important in so many different areas, were being honored at the highest level by the president uh, and, and the first lady on behalf of the American people. So that was, that was very important. I think this whole story is just fascinating because of the interaction with the people and what, what they accomplished and the, the connections they made.
1: And perhaps it was that spirit that was at the heart of this dinner that inspired a recreation of it almost 50 years on. Back in February 2020, a time that seems already like decades ago in those pre-lockdown times, the Cosmos Club, a private club in Washington, D.C., held a recreation of this 1962 dinner. The club, which has seen its own fair share of Nobel Prize winners as past and current members, recreated the evening's menu by Rene Verdun and naturally invited Joseph Esposito as an honored guest. Joseph Esposito's book is Dinner in Camelot, the night America's greatest scientists, writers, and scholars partied at the Kennedy White House. It's available everywhere good books are sold. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and photographer is Mike Port. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at feast where we'll put up some photos and videos from the 1962 Brains Dinner, as well as a few photos supplied by Joseph from the Cosmos Club. We'll also include direct links to the full White House tour television program hosted by Jackie Kennedy. You can also follow us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter to get all the feast news directly at thefeastpodcast.org. Although this whole COVID thing has thrown a proverbial wrench in our scheduling works, We're hard at work to get you more great historical dinner parties to enjoy at home. Stay well and safe out there. We'll be back soon with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.